0: This is Maureen Milliken, And this is Rebecca Milliken, And this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And, and once again,
1: it's a warm summer night in yes. Maine. And hopefully the nonstop parade of people <laughs> who walk by my house and talk loudly, even when they're alone, on their phones, oh, talking yeah, loudly. They, they have to. I know people are going to disagree with me on this, but the last fucking thing I want to do when I go for a walk is talk on the phone. I don't like talking on the phone, period. Me neither. I never talk in my car. I don't talk in a walk. And today I was in the grocery store and a lady had her phone on speaker in the uh-huh. grocery store <laughs> just sh- like in
0: that ad for <laughs> I, know, <laughs> I know i know but, but it's like
1: i can see okay if you're like honey what was that kind of yogurt calling somebody on the phone but these people who feel they have to be on the phone in the grocery store talking about you know Susie's diarrhea or whatever why and why do you have to be on speakerphone it, well, so everybody else can hear the conversation, I guess.
0: So, you have some updates, maybe? I have an update. Okay, and I don't have anything.
1: Okay, so. and this is an update on a number of our episodes. Oh. But most, uh, most notably, episode 95, Justice for Genetic Carr, A Long Time Coming, as well as episode, ni- I think 90 and 91, it was a two-parter, The Murder of Jody Parak. Oh, yeah, That's 1 and 2. Yep. And a lot of our... Reviews and stuff, Making a Murderer Comes to Mind, Mm. The Innocent Man, and a few others, and I'll get right into it. In a move that shouldn't be so groundbreaking, but unfortunately it is, Illinois has become the first state in the United States to prohibit police from lying to children under 18 if they're interrogating them. Right. Wow, what a bold move. Yes, in relation to a crime. More specifically, they can no longer lie to kids... About whether certain incriminating evidence exists or not, and they can't make false promises of lenience. Mm. For those of you who may not be aware, although if you listen to this podcast, I'm not sure how you want to be, but police in the United States are allowed to lie and to use a variety of powerful psychological ploys, all part of the read technique that they love so much. And I was trying to find... One of the things that slowed me down tonight is I was trying to find the episode where I went into a lot of detail on how that all developed and everything, and I couldn't find which episode. Oh, I think yeah, it was one of the Jody Parak ones. I kind of did a search, but... I think one of the ironies of the Reed technique is is that the guy who developed it, the whole case he developed it on, ended up being um, a false conviction that the person had to be released on later. But in any case, they use the Reed technique to extract confessions from people, which can lead to innocent people confessing to crimes that they didn't commit. According to the Innocence Project, of the 375 DNA exonerations that it has recorded, and that's 375 people who have been found innocent because of DNA evidence. False confessions contributed to 29% of the wrongful convictions. The re technique is a cockamamie process that most cops in the mm. U.S. use to interrogate people. It permits the use of deception to get a uh, suspect to confess. That's one of the basic tenets. So- Police will often tell a suspect that they already know they are guilty during an interrogation. The Innocence Project gives the example that a detective might start out an interrogation by telling a suspect that the results of their investigation clearly indicate the person is guilty, even when the investigation is not yet complete or hasn't even started in some cases. This is the first step, the Innocence Project writes, in a guilt-presumptive interrogation method. In other words, the police assume the person is guilty the minute they start talking to them. And this is the foundation of the read technique. Police try to convince a person that denials are pointless and confessing is the only option. They also pretend to be friendly sometimes and they want to help. Mm -hmm. And they'll claim to show some lenience if they confess. Police can lie to a suspect and say their friend or alleged co-defender confess, saying they committed the crime together, even when that person has not confessed to anything, as we saw with the Janetta Carr episode 95, where her friend was made to falsely confess and implicated Janetta, sending her to prison for several years for a murder she had nothing to do with. Police can also claim to have evidence, such as fingerprints leaking the subject of the interrogation to the crime, even if they don't exist, or DNA, as we saw in episode 90 and 91.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In those episodes, suspect Ray McCann was smart enough not to fall for it, but they, but then, ironically, they arrested him for perjury, claiming he lied to them. In a classic <laughs> case of police chutzpah, you know, they can lie to you, and then if you respond because of what they're telling you is a lie, you're lying to them, and you get arrested for it. It's... Kafkaesque. The Innocence Project says these kinds of lies about having evidence have long been identified as risk factors for false confessions and have contributed to some of the most notorious wrongful convictions, like that of the, or those, I guess, of the exonerated five who were previously known as the Central Park Five. You might think someone in the justice system would have thought before now that this is fucked up, but believe it or not, the U.S. Supreme Court has even supported lying to suspects, and that 1969 Supreme Court ruling has been used for the past 50-plus years to support police hmm. lying. In the 1969 case, Fraser v. Cup, the Supreme Court allowed a confession into evidence even though police lied to the suspect and told him his cousin had already confessed and implicated him in the crime when his cousin hadn't. And as I said, that has been used as the basis for this type of lazy and corrupt interrogation for more than 50 years. Not that they didn't do it before, but in 1969, they just got Supreme Court support for it. Young people are especially vulnerable because the parts of the brain that are responsible for future planning, judgment, and decision-making are not fully developed until a person reaches their mid-20s. The coercion and deception inherent in the read technique... The Innocent Project says, coupled with the recognized vulnerabilities and susceptibilities of children has led to an unacceptably high rate. false confessions among juvenile suspects one major issue and it's actually one i've heard on a variety of different podcasts recently related to a bunch of different murders different totally different podcasts by different people but it just seems to have come up a lot lately is that when police lie to kids either kids who are suspected of something or kids they think witness something or whatever and the police keep insisting that they're right kids automatically question themselves because Mm. This is a person in authority. Kids are conditioned to believe that this person wouldn't lie to them. So the kids think that they somehow must be wrong, even though they know they're not. And also, when they're badgered over and over and over for hours on end or in multiple interviews by an adult who's insisting on something, the kid finally gives in and tells the adult what they want to hear. It confounds me that this simple, obvious psychology that anyone who's dealt with kids on any level would know hasn't been clear to law enforcement. Of the 211 exonerees who are wrongly convicted as children that the Innocent Project itself has dealt with, 36% falsely confessed. And that's as opposed to 10% of adults Hmm. uh, or people over 18 who falsely confessed. And that's according to data from the National Registry of Exonerations. In Illinois, which... Several articles on this referred to as the capital of false confessions. (laughs) Mm. There have been a hundred overturned wrongful convictions that turned out to be false confessions. That's not all the wrongful convictions. That's just the false confessions ones. 31 of those hundred involved people under 18. Mm. Quote, Research experience and common sense tell us that minors are between two and three times more likely to falsely confess to crimes they didn't commit, said State Senator Robert Peters, who sponsored the bill. Representative Jim Durkin, a Republican and a former Chicago prosecutor who tried hundreds of criminal cases, was a co-sponsor of the bill, and he said, Our criminal justice system should not be guided by a conviction, but rather it should be guided by the advancement of the truth. And this is Maureen here. What a radical fucking mm, I know. <laughs> Quote, Deception can never be utilized under any condition in our criminal justice system, and particularly against juveniles. I say mm. this as a lawyer, legislature, and former prosecutor. And I got to tell you, I think his view is still the minority among those groups. Oh, I'm sure. One of this podcast's heroes, Laura Nyreiter... Oh of, yeah, uh, of the Innocent Project, who, as you know, making a murderer represented Brendan Dassey, who obviously was just totally manipulated and
0: Although jerked around. People, I uh, hear people arguing; they think he's well. He did so. Well, know, people know. can
1: argue the world is fucking flat too, <laughs> and all sorts of shit. But just because some people argue shit doesn't mean there's That's any basis right. to their argument. In any case, Laura Nyreiter <laughs> says, quote, I have spent my career representing children and teenagers who falsely confessed to crimes they didn't commit, including 16-year-old Brendan Dassey. Aww. This law is the first of its kind in the country that is directly targeted at reducing the likelihood of future false confessions so that we don't have more Brendan Dasseys. I'm proud that Illinois has shown such leadership in passing this historic reform. And yet, this is Maureen again, that deception is still okay in every state when it comes to adults, as well as almost all other states when it comes to kids.
0: Mm.
1: Oregon's legislature has passed a similar bill, which is yet to be signed by their governor. In New York, a law under consideration would ban deceptive tactics at all ages and mm. also establish a pretrial assessment of recorded confessions to determine the reliability and admissibility mm-hmm. in court. But that's still wending its way. Yeah, it's going to say, that'll never pass. Right. The Innocent Project points out that in New York, there have been 43 known false confession cases, most famously the Central Park, now exonerated, mm-hmm. five, and one New York case, which I recently read a book about after hearing the guy on a podcast. The police told 17-year-old Marty Tancliffe that his father told them that Marty is the one who attacked and beat him and his mother to death. Mm. Marty didn't know at the time his father was actually dead. He thought he was just in the hospital. He just knew he woken up and found his parents both beaten to death. So not only did the police lie about his father saying that, they also lied about him being alive to this 17-year-old kid who had just discovered his dead parents. He became convinced he must have somehow blacked out and for some unknown reason beat his parents to death, even though he had absolutely no reason to do it. He did recant pretty quickly, but it took decades. I think he was in prison for um, 30 years. I can't remember oh. now. And also some really good lawyers who fought like hell through the entire appeal process to get him out. And meanwhile, as in many of these cases, there was a much better suspect who got away with murder because the police mm. were corrupt and they just wanted to I, I guess it's the easy route. I don't know. Nail this 17 year old kid. And a reminder these are known cases. A lot are unknown. Like, for instance, Johnetta Carr, whose case in Kentucky is not famous or anything else. I had stumbled across it when I did episode 95, but she was later kind of, they kind of snuck her out of prison, but she still had a felony on her record and was one of a slew of pardons. Or parole. I'm sorry, I can't remember the terminology that the governor of Kentucky did before he left office two years ago, but she still has this felony on her record that she's trying to get off of it. It ruins a person's ability to get a job, to get an apartment to get a loan, all sorts of stuff. Because at 16, the police got somebody to lie because they were too fucking lazy to do their jobs. If you want to hear just how corrupt the Louisville, Kentucky, police department is, you can listen to episode 95 about that case. To give credit where it's due... The law allows recommendations made by the International Association of the Chiefs of Police, who supported it, this is the Illinois law, and global police training organizations, including Wicklander's Lasky and Associates, Inc., which is a leader in police training, and they're kind of the anti read technique. The Hmm. Illinois law was signed by Governor J.B. Pritzker in July, after it was passed by the Senate, 47 to 1, and the House, 114. To zero. I wonder who that mm. one in the Senate was. And But guess where cops aren't allowed to lie to suspects. All suspects. The rest of the fucking first world.
0: <laughs>
1: Proponents said that the Illinois law will encourage cops to use interrogation techniques commonly used in countries, most notably the UK. According to the Innocence Project, alternative methods have proven far more effective in producing reliable confessions. Quote... Mm. Yet, the vast majority of police agencies in the United States currently employ psychologically coercive, yet legally permissible, deceptive techniques. Dave Thompson, CFI and president of Wicklander-Zaloski, said, quote, "...Lying in an interrogation is hypocritical and contradictory to the development of rapport, a core component in ethical and successful investigative interviews. Illinois is leading the way in the evolution of interrogation standards with the passing of this law." This continues the trend of investigators seeking non-confrontational, research-based techniques to resolve cases while mitigating the risk of false confessions and improving trust within community police relationships. Andy Griffiths, no, yeah. <laughs> not, not the Sheriff of Mayberry and Opie's dad. He was Griffin. Oh, I no, know, he was, he was Griffin. Uh, well, whatever he was. This is a different one. This one's detective, or was detective superintendent of the Sussex Police in England. And he wrote an Innocent Project article in 2012 outlining what the U.K.'s tactics are. He said they were similar to those of the U.S. for decades until 1984 when the Police and Criminal Evidence Act was passed. It included things like mandated audio recordings of all suspect interviews, which I still don't think is law in most places in the U.S., Mm. the right to legal representation for suspects, and limits on detention if the person hasn't been charged. The law resulted from growing judicial and public criticism of police conduct when dealing with suspects, most notably the Birmingham Six and Guilford Four, two groups who were convicted of terrorist attacks, and their confessions were later found to have been coerced by physical and psychological abuse. And this is from Detective Superintendent Griffiths. Eventually, the convictions were quashed. Much like in America, the system didn't want to accept that the police misbehaved in such cases because, first of all, that would mean that you couldn't trust the police. And secondly, it would mean that the real offenders were still out there. Griffiths said that recording all police interviews showed that many officers were, contrary to popular belief, unskilled as interviewers. Quote, yeah, go figure. Quote, many officers went into the interview room assuming guilt. It's incredibly damaging to suggestive subjects if they know the officer doesn't believe them. But also it means that as an interviewer, you only listen to certain parts of the evidence. You ignore things that don't fit with your script. If there's strong evidence in a case, that's your best chance of getting a charge. Quite simple, really. And this is Maureen again. I think we now, or a lot of people now recognize that as confirmation bias, although it hasn't stopped the police from behaving that way. In the UK, talk about opposite of the READ technique they developed with the help of psychologists, a technique called PEACE, P-E-A-C-E. Ooh. And the letters stand for planning and preparation, engage and explain, account, clarification and challenge, and closure. Basically, you know your ship before you go in there. You engage the person, explain to them what's going on. You ask them for their account of what happened and then you go through their account and you kind of pick it apart and find contradictions and stuff and have them explain it and that is a much better way to get someone to either confess or to find out if they're telling the truth or not than getting two inches away from their face and screaming at them that they're lying i would think
0: and also keeping them in there for
1: hours and hours and hours. Right, right. Because in, in Britain, there, I can't remember how many hours it is, but it, I think there's a four-hour limit or I a six-hour limit. I think it's hour limit. four hours. Right. So. Training on that technique is required by every operational officer in the UK. Griffiths points out that in the UK, unlike the USA, there's a high degree of cooperation and standardization between police forces. He said the training is a massive commitment, but it has helped avoid miscarriage of of justice and it delivers better justice. Research studies and practical evaluations have also consistently shown higher skill levels and more objective approaches by officers who are trained in this technique. It's now accepted, he said, that not all officers make good interviewers. So the technique has developed into several tiers of training linked to an officer's field of work and their potential. So that means every cop doesn't get to slam somebody into the interrogation room and go at him. Not that that's what they do in the UK. Police in the UK <laughs> don't see interviewing as a secret process... Griffiths said, quote, And we don't feel the need to hide interview techniques. The law does not allow lying to suspects under any circumstances. Officers are trained to concentrate on probing a suspect's account, seeking to confirm or negate by comparison with other known information. When the suspect knows that I can't lie, my job is on the line if I do, I get more information, unquote. Sense. Yes, it does make sense. I think cops enjoy being... Tough guys, they enjoy being on power trips. Not all cops, but you watch American cop TV shows and most of the cops on them are like that. It's looked at as clever of the cops when they lie to suspects. I, I think it's not funny, but telling that out of 50 states, this one little law that's limited to people 18 and under is the only inroad on what should be a much bigger, bigger discussion and a bigger change of law. And I know it confounds people in other countries who don't understand how laws can be different in 50 states and how there isn't You know, there's a federal justice system, but every state is responsible for its own laws. So there's not going to be any big federal mandate on this. But yet, when the tide turns lots of times, you see that the dominoes fall. Although I can think of some states where I can't see this. Although Illinois surprises me a little as being a leader in this. But I can't see, for instance, Texas and Florida and places Hmm. that get, and no offense to our listeners from those states who are wonderful people and who who aren't representative of the justice systems of their states but these states that seem to get their jollies out of just incarcerating people and killing them whether they're innocent or guilty and i know that's an oversimplification but i don't think it's cynical of me to be making that oversimplification yes and that's my update thank you you're welcome do you, um, <laughs> no, I, you still hear people say, why would somebody confess to something they didn't do? I wouldn't confess to something I wouldn't do. And you'd think in this day and age, people would understand it more, but, but people still are very beholden to wanting to believe that
0: criminals are nothing like them. Well, they also don't, believe that they would act a certain way in a certain situation when they really have no idea what they would do. Right. But they're all everybody thinks they're they know everything. As you can see if you mm. read any uh comment section on the internet. Yeah, you know, to there's avoid always that. people who, you know, like say you got held up or something. People would be like Oh, why didn't you knock the, you know? Even pre-internet,
1: Becky, I don't know if you remember this, but at college, our sister Liz and her friend... Oh, yes. Were held up in the Holy Cross parking lot by a guy with a screwdriver. I can't remember what he took from them. They were two poor college kids, so probably not a lot, but they had to listen to people criticize. Oh, you yeah. know, I, I remember Liz that. telling a story. She was in, in Kimball, the dining hall, and heard people talking about it at the next table, and it's true. Unless you're in that situation you don't know and in fact there was a very good hidden brain episode about a year or so ago they it talked about a social experiment where people were asked something like that and then they went to a job interview that was fake that they didn't know was fake and like the guy would make would like sexually harass them Mm -hmm. and how they reacted to that. A lot of people end up when they're in a situation don't react the way that they've said previously that they're going to react because it's easy to imagine yourself as a hero. Exactly. It's a lot harder to be one. Ooh, that's so profound. I know, wow. And I just made that up right now. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I thought that was very interesting and it touches on a lot of things we talk about a lot. Yes, it does. I've always been... Curious about the read technique ever since we had a presentation on it. At Crime <laughs> it's
0: Bay. funny. Besides the presentation on that, on um, I watched that show. The oh, and I might have, I probably mentioned this before, but the Good Fight. There's an episode where there's some pro bono case that one of the lawyers has taken on. And it's a guy where the place he worked, like he worked at like Foot Locker or someplace like that. Yeah. And they accused him of stealing, which he hadn't stolen anything. But they, the, the security officers, used the Reed technique. And so the two lawyers, these two young women lawyers, went to a seminar on it. And it was really funny. Right,
1: and Becky, I'm remembering now, that whatever the episode it was, where I went into the whole thing about the read Technique and explained it, and I mentioned and that the businesses use it, that they train yes. businesses on it. I think you mentioned that. I probably
0: did. It was kind of funny, but it wasn't because no. it's real.
1: I just think it's counterintuitive to think that getting in somebody's face and screaming at them is going to elicit...
0: It's or, just like torture doesn't elicit right. the truth. It's going to get you what you want, maybe. Right. But and, it's not going to necessarily... Well, sometimes truth. I think the police want to get what they want. Uh, was, well, they want, they want a confession. They right. want it wrapped up. They want it done. Right. I think a lot of times they don't give a shit. Right. In fact, that, I was watching
1: it's... one of the most recent Datelines, which was unsatisfactory. I won't go into a whole NNW about it right now, but uh, it was about the uh, Walter Ograd case in Philadelphia. The guy had just come off like 30 hours of no sleep and he had worked yeah. a night shift and they hauled him in to question him. But they interviewed him for, I, I don't know how long, know and the police change they tag team yeah they can but um he was in for hours and hours and hours until they finally got a confession (sighs) and he recanted his confession almost immediately but was found guilty there was a mistrial well his first trial he was found not guilty except for right when the jury was about to read the verdict one of the jurors stood up and said i disagree and want to change my vote (laughs) <laughs> so that was a mistrial but then he was found guilty and the stepfather of the little girl he was convicted of killing still believes he did it despite oh, all the evidence geez. that the police were corrupt they made up evidence they ignored a possible suspect and all sorts of other shit just because i i really honestly think i hear people make excuses for the police and say well you know they really think the person did it it's like they should investigate and get their evidence whether they think a person did it or not, instead of zeroing in on the one person. And frankly, I think in a lot of cases, they almost don't give a shit. They I think this think, guy's uh, an yeah. idiot. He's a dirtbag. He's whatever. He's Thing. a drug user. He's black, whatever. He Not that Walter O'Grady was. He was white. But he's guilty of something We just want to convict somebody, and the whole thought that, yes, but now there's a guy out there who picked a four-year-old girl up off the street and killed her doesn't seem to matter to people. I know. And I know we've said it many times before, but the whole point of, you know, justice is finding out who did it, not getting revenge for somebody doing it. And, I know, and I kind of don't blame families who cling, even when all evidence shows, because the prosecution clings to it, the cops cling to it, and they, in a way, kind of brainwash the victim's family. They're their friends, like in the Jodi yeah, Perak thing. They're, they, they, they become be dependent on them, right. yeah. And, and for them to think, I've been hoodwinked
0: by these guys
1: for decades. Well,
0: they feel like this person is fighting for them right. and for their, right. the person that's the victim.
1: But in any case, so that was that update. And I'm excited to hear what your episode is because I'm wondering if it's something that I had thought of doing. But anyway.
0: Um, I don't know if you'll know it. Um, you weren't living in Maine at the time. So, and well, it wasn't a big story. So. But I was
1: living in New Hampshire, which is right yeah, next Yeah, but door. it
0: wasn't, I don't
1: okay. think. Okay, well, it then was, maybe
0: it's not okay. the one I was hoping it would be. Okay, I've thought about doing this story for a while. I didn't know if there was enough to do a story on, so I kind of kept putting it off. But I've always remembered it, and, and I noticed it at the time that it happened because murders, as we've talked about, they're pretty rare in Maine. Also, the victim's obituary had a photograph of her with her two dogs, her two Dalmatians. Aww. And every year the family has a memoriam in the paper with that photo. And I always remember, I think I've said before that a lot of times if I'm reading the paper or if I see something online, I'll take a screenshot. But if I'm reading the paper, I'll snap a picture with my phone of either a headline or something when I'm trying to think of things to do my stories about. I had taken a picture of her memoriam ad or whatever you call them on the obituary page. I had at least two pictures of that from different years. Hmm. So I figured it must be something I, I, wanted to do. And I forgot a lot about it. It was in 1998. So I got most of my information from the Portland Press Herald archives, which I had to pay for. Even though I pay for a subscription, I can't get all the archives and the library. That's bullshit. If you're Portland, paying for a
1: subscription, you should be able to get the archives. That's no just shit. bullshit. You have
0: to go for that national. There's a site that makes yeah, you that pay. Heck. And um, yeah, the library, the microfiche, thing isn't open or it might be open by appointment. I don't really. And I did have some from the Bangor Daily News from newspapers.com. It wasn't unique information. So and I did find some court papers online. So let me start my story. Somewhere after 9 p.m. on the night of April 30th, 1998, Portland, Maine police got a call about a truck screeching its tires on Oxford Street. Later that night at about 941, patrol officer Henry Small noticed a truck driving erratically and speeding on Baxter Boulevard. The boulevard, as it's called, Curves around Portland's back cove. The truck was going well above the posted 40 mile per hour speed limit and crossing the center line. The truck sported a license plate that read LVMYTRK. Love my truck.
1: Love my truck. <laughs> Can I just interrupt for something random? Yes. Whenever I see a vanity plate or we try to figure out what one I always yes. think of on Reno 911, yes. <laughs> like there, I think there's a couple times where they're Two of them will be in the front seat of the cruiser (laughs) trying to figure out what a vanity plate in front of them means and then they'll like crash into the (laughs) car.
0: It's funny. Officer Small followed the truck for a while, blue lights going, trying to pull the driver over. He let the driver get away when he was radioed by a supervisor to give up the chase because the traffic was too heavy. It was determined that to continue the chase would put lives of other motorists and possibly pedestrians in danger. This was department policy, and I can't remember, but there was a specific incident or several around that time that caused police to formulate this protocol something happened when they were in a high-speed chase mm-hmm. and they decided so they started to have that policy at about 11 50 that same night a 911 call came from an address in buxton which is about 26 miles west of portland the caller said a woman was injured and gave the address when buxton police officer brian pellerin showed up at the house on hurland smith road only a few minutes after the call no one answered the door The man who had called 911 was gone. When Officer Pellerin looked in the kitchen window, he saw blood all over the room. He went into the house and found Dawn Layton, age 34, lying on her bathroom floor, partially clothed, covered in blood. Her two Dalmatians, Murphy and Abby, were curled up against her. A little past midnight, Portland police received a 911 call from a man who told them he had stabbed a woman in Buxton, and he was at the Pennywise Market on Ocean Avenue calling from a payphone the pennywise market now is gone it's some hipster bakery Mm. or something About the same time, Buxton police were calling Maine State Police to report the murder of Don Layton. As we have explained on this podcast before, the Maine State Police handle all murder cases in every municipality in Maine except Bangor and Portland, and the Maine Attorney General's office prosecutes every murder case. About 20 minutes later, Officer Henry Small, the same cop who chased the truck earlier that evening, spotted the white truck with the Love My Truck license plate near the corner of Ocean Avenue and Washington Avenue. Officer Small realized this was the guy they were looking for in the Buxton murder and gave chase. The driver of the truck was Robert Reichert and he lived nearby on Kidder street with his mother, Dolores or Dolly, as she was called. Hmm. The pickup truck got on Interstate 295 and drove north to Falmouth with police in pursuit. Then Rob Reichert got off the highway and drove back towards Portland on Route 1. He was going 100 miles an hour at times, but this time the police were not going to let him get away. Witnesses said as Rob drove through the East Deering neighborhood where he lived and passed his own apartment building, which he did twice, he honked his horn. (laughs) At about 12.35 a.m. on Allen Avenue near Brook Road, Sergeant Sullivan Rizzo rammed rob reichert's truck causing the truck to spin off the road and into a tree rob had some injuries cuts to his face and a broken jaw and a fractured spine but nothing life-threatening at the time portland deputy police chief mark dion told the associated press about sergeant rizzo quote he made a good cop decision mm. In the early hours of may 1st 1998 rob reichert 25 was charged with murder while in his hospital bed at maine medical center He was in fair condition and under police guard. Later on Friday, a search of Rob's truck turned up a bloody Leatherman tool, which was determined to be the murder weapon. Mm. For those of you who don't know what a Leatherman tool is, it's an all-purpose tool similar to a swiss army knife but it looks more like pliers when you unfold it it has a bunch of blades pliers bottle openers etc depending on the model rob's obviously had blades
1: and betty adams the longtime crime and other reporter at the kennebec journal used to talk about leatherman tools saying that they are almost always found on um men in maine convicted of crimes no matter what their crime is and whether they used it or not well they're
0: handy they are handy yeah, They fold up into a little, it, it doesn't really look like a jackknife. It looks like it's just no, like it's a, a little, little bigger metal it's, Yeah. yeah
1: it's, it's almost like a box cutter size and has some box cutter type blades on it. Of course too, it does.
0: At the time of the killing, police told the press herald that Dawn and Robert were, quote, just friends and she was engaged to someone else, mm-hmm. both of which were not exactly true, as I'll explain later. Police would not try to guess at a motive for the crime and weren't sure how the two knew each other. Dawn Layton was described in her obituary as an energetic, upbeat woman who loved animals and wanted other people to love them. She was born in Portland in 1963 or 64, I'm not sure. Her dad, John, was a tugboat captain. Her mother's profession was never written about, so she may have been a homemaker, as many moms of that generation were. Dawn had a younger sister, Julie, and a younger brother, John Jr. In 1985, Dawn married David Chenard, and though they were divorced in 1988, they were still friendly. Don went to Scarborough High School and graduated in 1981 and then attended Westbrook College in Portland and got an associate's degree in dental hygiene in 1983. Dawn's father said, she was always on the honor list and people have told me a hundred times that she was the best dental hygienist. Before becoming a dental hygienist in Portland and Falmouth, Dawn worked at Blue Seal Feeds in South Windham, where she demonstrated her love of dogs by volunteering to give dogs flea dips and baths. Even when a German Shepherd bit her, she finished up the bath before she got a tetanus shot. Don's sister Julie told the Press Herald, it didn't make her afraid of approaching a dog again. She got a shot, but it didn't stop her from doing what she wanted to do. Yes, Don loved dogs. In particular, her two show dalmatians murphy and abby she showed them around the united states and canada where the two dogs collected a lot of ribbons when abby retired from her show dog job she became certified as a therapy dog and don and abby visited area nursing homes to meet residents don's friend linda dean told the press herald she just loved to share her dogs with people don was also training abby to be a tracking dog it sounds like abby was the overachiever of the two (laughs) i don't think it sounds like Murphy doesn't do that much. Her two doggies were like her kids. She had birthday parties for them. They even wore party hats and ate cake and ice cream. Dawn loved nature photography too but her favorite subjects to photograph were Murphy and Anne. Dawn had a love for all animals but especially dogs. She volunteered at the Maine Humane Center in South Wyndham where she would walk the dogs. And something that pissed her off was seeing a dog in a car on a hot day. Mm. Which should piss us all off. Yes, Dawn loved her family also. The Layton family was very close. Even if Dawn was gone on a vacation somewhere, she'd call home to check on Murphy and Abby, but also her folks. By all accounts, she was a giving, caring person who looked after those she loved and their teeth. She made sure they all flossed. John Sr. told the Press Herald, Everybody in the family, she's in charge of their teeth. She looks after all of us. In November of 1997, Dawn bought a house in Buxton. She was so excited about it. She had scrimped and saved for years, and it was her dream to own her own house. Her father was going to help her fix it up. The house on Herland Smith Road was a small ranch with gray shingles, but it was hers and the dogs. Her dad said she was happy she bought the house for her dogs. To help her save money and save up for The down payment. She lived with her parents for about six months in Scarborough on Westwood Avenue, which is off Route 1 right next to the Scarborough Police Station. And Amato's sandwich. Mm. Next door to John Sr. and Helen Layton lived George Riker, who had a 25-year-old son, Robert. The newspapers always make sure to say he's their adopted son. That always bugged me. Which I don't know why. I used to tell reporters, unless the adoption has something
1: to do with the story, saying adopted son... is is pointless.
0: I know. There's no reason. They always said that in every story. Rob lived with his mom, Dolly, but spent time at his dad's house too. George and Dolly had been divorced for eight years. George, a retired contractor, and Dolly, again, not sure of her profession, were foster parents to Rob who came to live with them when he was 11 years old. Rob had been a ward of the state since the age of seven and had gone from foster home to foster home before ending up with the Rikers they ended up adopting the boy. George told the Press Herald it was not easy being Rob's father, quote, he would really upset the teachers, so we would have to come and work things out. I said to myself, I wish I'd never tried to adopt a kid, end quote. Mm-hmm. Rob graduated from Daring High School in Portland in 1992 and moved into an apartment with his mother when Dolly and George Reichert divorced. Rob had a series of low-paying jobs, to which I say, yeah, when I was in my early 20s, I did too, so... Rob pled guilty in 1993 to hitting a police car in the main mall parking lot. There had been a plea agreement in which Rob was to serve seven days in jail on a 364-day sentence and also accept alcohol and psychological therapy. Neighbors from the East Daring neighborhood of Portland, where Rob and Dolly lived, said Rob loved his 1995 Dodge Dakota truck, which he constantly washed and waxed in the Kidder Street driveway. He didn't seem to have any friends. At least the neighbors never saw anyone visit. And I looked at a map. Now there is East Kidder Street and West Kidder Street, but I don't think that used to be. I think it was all just Kidder Street back then. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. No. Rob worked for a cleaning company and sometimes did carpentry work. George told the press herald that his son was doing well recently. He'd gotten a promotion and a Raise and pay at the cleaning company, and he was now a supervisor. George said he was stunned when he was told by state police about Rob's arrest. Quote, I saw it on the news, but it didn't add up. As for Dolly, George said, she still doesn't believe it. Rob and Don met the summer of nineteen ninety-seven when she was staying with her parents. Don and Rob would both do yard work for their folks, and probably because of Don's friendly nature, the two began to talk. Don had recently moved out of her boyfriend. Anthony Fecto's house Mm. to live with her parents. A friend of Dawn's told the press Herald he wanted to get married. So she was asking herself, do I get married or don't I get married? Now, uh, this is Rebecca speaking here. I wouldn't call this being engaged as the police told the press. Uh, Maybe I'm just projecting, but it seemed like Dawn's plans included her own house and her dogs, Mm. but maybe not a husband. She was happy to have her little house, which I looked up online. It's a very cute little house. And her two dogs. A, a newspaper editor, I always used to
1: tell reporters, never trust the police's assessment of <laughs> a relationship. You know? That's right. Especially if they're calling somebody boyfriend and girlfriend
0: or some people mm-hmm. were dating. Which we talked about. Yes. Yeah, And the other... Because yeah. they don't know. John Layton told the Press Herald that his daughter's kindness probably led to her demise. Mm-hmm. Don was a nice person, an empathetic person, the kind of person that other people tell their troubles to. She felt bad for Rob Riker as he told her about his problems, how he couldn't keep a job and he might lose his precious truck. According to Don's sister Julie, quote, she, meaning Don) thought he, Rob, was a really nice guy, very polite. I only saw him in the driveway at my parents, but he just seemed to me to be well-rounded. Mm. John Leighton saw what was going on and didn't like it, quote, <laughs> She took pity on him, but it didn't feel good to me, end quote. And I want to say there's John the senior and John Jr. A lot of times I put senior or junior after it, but um, I didn't always. But I think the context, I usually say his daughter or her sister. So George Reichert told the Press Herald about Rob and Don, quote, he liked her. There was no question about that. He may have read more into what was actually there, end quote. Shortly after Dawn moved into her new house in Buxton, Rob Reichert followed her there and gave her a dozen roses. Ah, Dawn was not thrilled. Her father, John, said, She was very gentle telling him, I'd like to be your friend, but you need help. That seemed to settle it. He never bothered her all winter, John told the press herald. The last time John spoke to his daughter was about 7:30 p.m. the night she was killed. They talked on the phone and Don, who sounded hoarse, told John she had a cold and was planning on going to bed early. John said he was sure she wasn't expecting anyone, especially not Rob Riker. After Don's death, John said he was going to take Abby and Murphy, the Dalmatians, to live with him. He said, they are so in tune with her that it bothers me. I hope they can readjust. A few days after her murder, Maine State Police issued an affidavit in which Rob Reichert told what happened. Unfortunately, the way it's reported, it makes it sound like it's what actually happened as opposed to the fucking murderer's version of what happened. <sighs> but in many cases, unfortunately, that's all we have. Hmm. One thing that stuck in my craw is every story says her rejection was the motivation for him to kill her, that because she spurned his romantic overtures, he killed her. That's, that's not bullshit. He, bullshit. Why... He killed her. He killed her. He fucking killed her. I know this is over 20 years ago, but victim blaming still goes on. Mm -hmm. It pisses me off, as you all know. Anyway, the affidavit says Reichert told a detective they talked, and he wanted to tell her how he felt about her. She got angry and told him to leave. He stabbed her with a knife. They struggled And at her request, he called Buxton Rescue. Officer Pellerin showed up only a few minutes after the call. But as I said before, no one else was at the little gray house, just Don and Abby and Murphy. The autopsy by Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Margaret Greenwald said that Don was stabbed twice in the chest once in the right shoulder and twice in the head. She also had defensive wounds on her wrists and the back of her left hand. When Rob Reichert stood up in court at his first appearance the Monday after Don Layton's murder, he had injuries to his face from his truck running into a tree. Rob was represented by attorney Clifford Strike. No relation to Heck, Corman Strike. No, Sorry. <laughs> I wouldn't think... just Who told Judge John Levy that Rob was somewhat confused as a result of the pain meds he was taking. News reporters asked police chief michael chitwood about the decision to end the earlier car chase that evening if rob had been pulled over and arrested for operating under the influence don could still be alive Mm. however as i said before the policy was that if the risk of the chase was greater than the person being chased the chase needed to be abandoned
1: people can't say if they'd only stopped him for oui or whatever
0: he wouldn't have killed Don. He would have just killed her some fucking other day. It wasn't a random attack. I know. Michael Chitwood said Officer Small could not have known that Rob was on his way to stab someone to death. Mm. He said, this is an unfortunate tragedy, but what if we had chased him and he killed a family of five? And police are criticized when they do have a high-speed chase for somebody that isn't a murderer or something, and people are put at risk. A week later, at (laughs) his arraignment on May 11th, Robert Reichert pleaded not guilty to the murder of Don Layton in front of Judge Nancy Mills. He was represented by attorneys Clifford Strike and Patrick Gordon. At the time, Rob's lawyers hadn't decided on whether or not to ask for bail. Rob's mother and sister-in-law were at the hearing, but the Press Herald didn't report whether or not any of Don's family were there, which is weird because I'm assuming they must have been because they're very close. Patrick Gordon, one of the attorneys, said to the Press Herald that the Reicharts seemed to be doing fine. It's like, well, I'm glad they're doing fine. Yeah. Over a week later, Rob Reichert's lawyers decided not to ask for bail at the time, but maybe revisit the issue later. Clifford Strike said, we just felt it would be more appropriate to deal with it at a later date, End quote. Per Maine law, defendants charged with murder lose their automatic right to bail. But court can decide to award a defendant bail assistant state attorney fernand la rochelle uh-huh. said the state would oppose any bail for rob reichert Don's family and friends sh- showed up for this hearing on may 22nd john layton jr Don's brother told reporters we're in shock and disbelief at the brutal murder of my sister the family brought two photos to the hearing with them one of Don wearing a white dress and a photo of the dogs abby and murphy Dawn's family and friends wore white ribbons with black polka dots in honor of her love for her Dalmatians. In December of 1998, Rob's attorneys tried to get some of the evidence thrown out, saying that Leatherman believed to be the murder weapon had been obtained illegally and that Rob's three confessions were inadmissible because he was so wasted when he gave them. Clifford Strike said that Rob was too drunk to know what he was doing when he waived his right to a lawyer the morning after the murder. But a medical expert testified that by the time Rob was questioned the morning of May first. First... When he gave his third confession, he was sober enough to know what he was doing. Mm -hmm. I guess he gave the first confession, and I'll talk about it later, but the first call he made, he confessed. The second call he made, he confessed. And the next morning, when he was in the hospital and the police were questioning him, he confessed again, so. The Leatherman tool was found by Detective Robert Slattery the same morning, May 1st. Rob's truck was being loaded onto a flatbed to be taken to the state crime lab in Augusta. When Detective Slattery saw the bloody Leatherman behind the driver's seat. Although there was no warrant to search the truck yet, Detective Slattery was afraid hair and fiber evidence on the weapon would be disturbed if it moved around too much during the 60-mile drive. Judge Robert E. Crowley said it was all good. The evidence would stay in the trial. It's funny how there's so many different judges in this. I know. Usually there's like one judge. And they're all former co-stars of our episodes, earlier episodes. In April 1999, Rob Reichert changed his plea to not guilty by reason of insanity. Clifford Strike, while not citing anything specific, said, we've had indications over the past several months that led us to have some psychological exams done on him. That prompted us to file a motion to amend his plea. Two doctors examined Rob Reichert during the year he was in jail. In a March 25th report, one of the doctors who examined Rob said serious issues exist relating to the defendant's state of mind at the time of the incident. The state didn't object to the change of plea, but Don's family did. Quote, I don't believe he was insane. He clearly knew what he was doing, John Layton Jr. told the Press Herald. I think he needs to take responsibility for what he did and pay the consequences. By December of 1999, Rob Reichert still hadn't gone to trial. But Dawn's family, friends, and former classmates at Rustbrook College had a ceremony to honor her. A plaque with a picture of Dawn and the words, in memory of her dedication to the dental hygiene field, and for her warmth and humanity, may she always be blessed, was installed in in the Grace Coleman Dental Hygiene Building. The family was hoping the ceremony would remind people that Don's murder was still unresolved and that Rob Reichert had yet to face a judge and jury for crime he committed. Julie Layton, Don's sister, told the Press Herald, it's important for the family to keep her alive in people's minds, spirits, and souls. This is the hardest time between the murder and the trial. We take it one day at a time, but it's not getting better. The pain is still there. The emptiness is still there. Rob never got bail. For over a year and a half, he lived at the county jail. In January of 2000, the trial of Rob Reichert was finally about to start. According to Clifford Strike, Rob was super drunk that night, and his bizarre behavior clearly showed he was insane. And furthermore, Rob didn't plan to kill Dawn. It just happened because Rob was drunk, nuts, and got upset. Rob's alcohol level that night was .147, almost twice the legal limit of .08. And according to Clifford Strike, there was no intent to kill Dawn, Hmm. which is a legal requirement for a murder conviction, according to Maine law. Clifford Strike said the issue before the jury will be whether or not Mr. Riker was criminally responsible for his actions. Not surprisingly, Don's family thought this was a load of bullshit. Hmm. John Jr. said, I don't think he, Rob, was insane. To me, insane people live in group homes and are institutionalized or under medical care for their diagnoses. He was capable of maintaining a job, functioning day-to-day, owning a vehicle, and paying bills. He knew where he was, he knew what he did, and he was able to call 9 at Don's request. Several weeks prior to the trial, John Layton Jr. sent letters to each of the 180 members of the Maine State Legislature asking them to put pressure on the Attorney General's office not to negotiate a plea agreement that would give Rob than 50 years in prison. Many of the legislators wrote letters supporting Don's family. John Jr. told reporters, quote, Not a minute goes by when we don't think about Don. We just want justice for my sister. John Layton who, Jr., who was 30 at the time of the article, became a victim's rights advocate after his sister's murder. He told the Press Herald, fighting for the rights of crime victims helped him deal with his grief. He said, I remember kneeling at Don's casket and assuring her she'd get the justice she deserved. They considered Don's murder a crime against the state. But it's also a crime against the family. On January 24, 2000, just before his trial was about to start, Rob Reichert pled guilty to the murder of Don Layton, He had worked out a plea agreement in which he would serve no more than 45 years in prison for the murder. According to Rob's attorney, Clifford Strike, Rob agreed to the plea agreement to spare the Laytons the ordeal of going to trial. Cliff said, he, meaning Rob, has never denied he was responsible for Miss Layton's death. He has always been remorseful for it. Even though the sentence was less than what Don's family had wanted, they accepted it. John Jr. told the Press Herald, ultimately, Rob Reichert deserves life and if we had the death penalty he deserved that but if we can come out with 45 years we're doing pretty well after the plea hearing more information was reported early in the afternoon the day of the murder rob Riker had started drinking while on the job cleaning houses mm. dawn was asleep in front of the tv when rob showed up she was on her couch sleeping when he got to dawn's house later that night she let him in and at this, I say, why, Dawn, why? If Don't she, be nice. She could have opened the door and he let himself come in.
1: Or maybe well, like true. many people, she doesn't have her door locked if she's on the couch watching TV. And he came that's in. True. Yeah, like, by whose? She
0: fell asleep on the couch. It, to who do they attribute I know, I know. this
1: information?
0: I know. This is the affidavit. that. Of right. His, yeah. As I said, it's his story. Right. She's not around to tell it. Mm-hmm. Too bad the doggies can't talk. I know. Too bad they weren't German shepherds who were, who were who sitting on her his and arm ripped off. his throat yeah. out. Rob told police Don was lying on the couch and got upset when he touched her. <laughs> this was when Rob pulled out the Leatherman and started stabbing Don, who ran into the kitchen and tried to fight him off. As Don lay dying on her bathroom floor, she pled with Rob to call 911, which she did, telling the dispatcher he'd hurt Don. Then Rob left. At his sentencing, Rob seemed dazed, according to the newspaper account. Clifford Strike said that Rob was on Prozac for depression and lithium for paranoia. As Rob answered the judge's questions with yes or no, his mother sobbed. The newspaper called her his, quote, stepmother, but I don't believe that's true. If anything, it's his adoptive mother, if you're going to say that. If he had a stepmother, which I don't think he did, she wouldn't have been sobbing because she probably wouldn't have even known him because his father, I don't think, had a wife. They don't mention her. So it's just bad reporting. I'm sorry. While well, A.G.A. La Rochelle talked, about, that's a main name, La Rochelle. I know. Yeah. Talked about Don's attack and the injuries she sustained. Her parents, John and Helen, held on to each other and cried. Dawn's friends and family again wore the white and black polka dotted ribbons in her memory. Her brother John Jr. told reporters, quote, It was a brutal attack. Don was savagely attacked. It's been twenty one months of hell for our family. On May third, two thousand, almost exactly two years since her death, Don Layton's killer was sentenced in York Superior Court in Alfred. John Layton Jr. brought an autopsy photo of Don to court with him. Oh. When he stood to speak to Justice Arthur Brennan, John listed his sister's injuries to make sure the judge understood what kind of attack Rob Reichert had brought against his sister, whose only crime was being too nice. John wanted to make sure Rob Reichert got every year of the 45-year sentence his plea agreement had detailed. He said later, I felt that Justice Brennan needed to hear it again, and I felt Rob needed to hear it again. Mm. John Jr. told the court how he had first realized the dead woman he'd heard about on the news was his sister and how his dad had fallen to his knees in the driveway when he found out about Don's murder. He told how the family had to clean up the crime scene and pack up Don's stuff which was still in boxes because no one could bear to look through it. Justice Brennan said, this has to be one of the most egregious sets of facts for homicide that we can imagine in Maine. We are blessed with a very low violent crime rate and this kind of event particularly unsettles that sense of safety and trust. Clifford Strike. Argued that Rob should only get 30 years because he had been abused and neglected as a child, had below average intelligence, depression, and was an alcoholic. Mm. He hadn't ever been treated for any of those issues until he ended up in jail. For his part, AGA Fernand La Rochelle said Rob was an extremely disturbed individual with strong antisocial traits. AJA La Rochelle said that Rob had anger issues and had particular issues with rejection by women. And when he drank, his issues flared up. Strike, sorry, every time I say strike, I I think of Cormoran Strike. Cliff, I'll just call him Cliff, said the medications Rob were on made him seem like he had no emotion, but he really was remorseful for killing Don. Rob told the court, I want to apologize to the Layton family for causing their daughter's death. I just hope someday they will forgive me. And I have to cut into here to say Mm. that's typical. Yes. Causing her death. No, you killed her. Right. You can say it. You right. killed her. You did not cause her death. Exactly. You didn't like leave a manhole cover open and she fell in and died. You killed her. I was going to say the same thing. So I'm glad you were of it. one yes. mind. Yes. Don's father, John Senior, cried as he told the court about the phone conversation he had had with Don the night of her murder. He was joking to Don and said. The only thing certain were death and taxes. Mm -hmm. He Mm -hmm. told the court, I'll never make that statement again as long as I live. Julie Dawn's sister said Robert Reichert will still be able to breathe, eat, sleep, and even get an education. Mm -hmm. Our lives will never be the same no matter how much time passes. Justice Brennan gave Robert Reichert the maximum sentence of 45 years in prison. And he's still there from what I can tell. And he'll probably be there at least till age 63. A couple days after the sentencing, the Layton family filed a wrongful death suit against Rob Reichert. John Jr. said in the Press Herald, we know he has nothing and we know he probably never will. But as long as we have that judgment against him, he will be obligated to pay into Don's estate for what he has done. This is the only time that we'll be able to select an attorney, file the suit, and hopefully prevail in time for Don as a family versus the state doing it. I hate to say that we feel like we're going to be attached to him for the rest of our lives, but we know that's the reality of it, and this will definitely remind him every time he collects some kind of revenue that he has to forfeit some portion of that. It definitely will remind him what he has done later that year john jr ran as an independent for the legislature on a victim's rights platform about the plea agreement and don's murder john said that victims should have more input and should have quote their voices heard and respected but he was also interested in education and health care issues he wasn't just a one issue candidate but i don't believe he won i tried to look it up i didn't see that he Mm. won in september 2001 The Press Mm. Herald had a story about John Layton Jr. heading to New York City as a member of the main chapter for Parents of Murdered Children which I'm assuming they let all family members join, since it was his sister. John Jr., along with Debbie O'Brien, head of the main chapter, were going to New York to counsel firefighters and others who were affected by the 9-11 attacks. And this story was only a few days later. It was on September 15th. John worked as an emergency medical technician, as well as volunteering as a victim's advocate. He told the Press Herald, going down there and doing what we can kind of helps us with our grieving process. There are so many emotions, happy, sad, there's that fear and joy of being able to help somebody. We have that attitude that we will try to touch as many lives as we can and come back and feel good about it. On November 28, 2001, the Layton family got their judgment against Robert Riker. Justice Arthur Brennan awarded the Laytons a total of $221,542.87 in their wrongful death suit. 150000 for loss of companionship the most that can be awarded, 21542 for the funeral expenses and 50000 for the punitive damages. In the courtroom that day, Helen Leighton, Dawn's mother, told Justice Brennan, they tell me it gets better, but it doesn't. It gets worse. Then Helen turned to Robert Reichert, who's representing himself, and said, I don't care about anything anymore. You've ruined the lives of us all. As for Rob representing himself, he didn't really have a choice because no one's going to represent him. No one has to do it. If it's a civil suit, and right. who's going to help them? The Laytons knew they weren't going to get any money. They were already entitled to $10,000 from Rob for funeral costs as the victims of his crime, and they had received less than $100 so far.
1: What, his family couldn't sell that Dodge Dakota and get some cash for that?
0: I know. Good point. In the ruling, Justice Brennan wrote, Quote, While the sum is likely beyond mister Reichert's ability to respond, anything less would diminish the gravity of the offense and fail to recognize the magnitude of the loss suffered by the Layton family and the larger community. John Junior said he needs to be held criminally responsible for what he's done, and we as a family collectively also believe he needs to be held financially responsible for what he's done. Joel Vincent, the family's attorney, said this was never about the money. There needs to be some accountability. Certainly it sends a notice if somebody does commit these sorts of acts and does have money, they'll have to pay, end quote. Yeah, I'm Mm. sure that's what they're thinking about. How the Laytons would ever actually collect anything was uncertain. They were already entitled to half of Rob's prison income, but he hadn't been working much in prison due to his issues, both psychological and emotional. John Jr. told reporters outside the courthouse, does this bring closure? I don't, think there's such a term but we'll know we've gone above and beyond what we can do. In 2002 John Jr was in the news again. He was named National Murder Response Coordinator for parents of murdered children. His job was to recruit other public safety workers such as police, firefighters or EMTs like himself, which is emergency medical technician, to volunteer as respondents to murder scenes, especially mass casualties such as mass shootings. John told the Press Herald it's a shock that i wouldn't want anyone to have to experience to be told a sibling or your child has been murdered it's reassuring and comforting if you have somebody who has been there who has been through it john said he had recently been given the clothing dawn was wearing when she was killed mm. he kept copies of autopsy photos he said that's just stuff i feel i need to have everything at my fingertips and have put away And I'm thinking that maybe that's the only way he can feel like he has control over it, maybe. About his volunteer work, he said, It has an incredible therapeutic benefit knowing that I can offer somebody something that not a lot of people can offer. I've got my public safety background, and I've got this horrific experience of my sister's murder. Everybody grieves differently. Part of my grief process is turning some of my grief into supporting people and other families who have lost someone to homicide. And he was in the paper a few months later when he and the group Parents of Murdered Children were protesting a VH1 show called Music Behind Bars. Mm. The show was about music programs in prison and how they were helping with rehabilitation. But victims' rights groups felt that it was hurtful to see prisoners having fun while their own loved ones were gone. John Jr. said, I have an issue with VH1 going into the prison system to provide an opportunity for these people to have time in the spotlight. It's been rough. Then you have to fight these battles. Stop victimizing the victims. On June 30th, 2014 the main branch of parents of murdered children unveiled a monument in augusta with a plaque bearing the names of 83 murder victims there was room for at least 400 more to be added most of them domestic violence victims Mm -hmm. john layton senior was at the ceremony with his wife helen helen said it's been 16 years and it still seems like yesterday it's been a long time coming it's a place you can come if you need to even though i never knew don i think this is me again sorry rebecca I think of her every time I see that picture of her in the obit section Mm -hmm. every year with her Dalmatians. She loved her dogs, iced tea, and clean teeth, and -hmm. she was a friendly, kind person. And to finish my story, I'm gonna read something I came across in my research that seems relevant. Mm. to this story and a lot of our stories. And then you and I can discuss. Yes. And also, I just want to say about... I feel bad saying this because I don't like to say bad things about other artists' work. But that plaque, it's supposed to be, I think, two... Uh, well, I know what it's supposed what to be. What plaque it's, are you talking about? The plaque at that cemetery for the murdered people in Maine, mm-hmm. which is right across from Barnes & Noble. It's on Townsend Road. Yes, yeah. the cemetery there. Yep. It looks like a cartoon character with two big eyes. It's supposed to be two people like hold Hmm. like cradling somebody yeah but every time i looked at it all i could see was like i'll take a photo of it for our website okay okay so let me read this this is an editorial it was in the press herald on july 5th 1998 and it was written by Ellen Ridley Hooper of Wyndham. She works as an educator for Opportunity for Change, which is a program for convicted batterers. Headline, Remember These Women by Name. There is another dead woman. She was murdered in Wyndham by her husband. People must remember reading the two articles in the newspaper do they remember her name a few weeks before her murder there was another dead woman this time in portland she was the one who had this successful beauty salon whose husband suspected she was having an affair do mainers remember her name a few weeks before that there was another dead woman she lived in buxton she didn't want to have a relationship with the man who had been pursuing her She rejected him, and he stabbed her till she died. Do they remember her name? Then there was the South Paris woman. Her husband blew her brains apart with a forty-five caliber handgun. The newspaper article said the couple had been fighting. Mm -hmm. What was her name again? Early this year, a homeless woman's body was found in a warehouse. People may recall letters to the editor written by friends and relatives who reaffirmed that her life had dignity, although alcoholism and homelessness had taken their toll. She was murdered by an ex boyfriend. Does anyone remember her name? I suspect most people don't remember these women's names. In fact, it may be that the community silence surrounding these women's murders suggests something fiercely disturbing about our culture's views on violence against women and violence from marital partners. It suggests a public that feels largely insulated from these crimes and therefore a public that need not care too awful much. Perhaps each of us simply thinks. This will never happen to me. However, there is indeed one common denominator that can indicate whether or not a woman will be battered or murdered by the man with whom she has an intimate relationship. It is not that she has low self-esteem or that she came from a low-income family. It's not that she was abused as a child or that she abuses addictive substances. It's not that she works as a service clerk in a discount store rather than a nurse anesthetist anesthetist in a (laughs) hospital. It's that she is female. Sometimes I wonder what people think caused these men's behavior. Do they think he must have just snapped? Or what is the world coming to anyway? Do they erroneously think he must have had a lot of problems managing his anger? Do they draw any connections between these murders and the fact that hundreds of Maine women flee their abusive partners each year because they fear for their lives? That thousands more call crisis hotlines every day? Do they wonder why it is that every county has a confidential shelter where women can get some safety? Do they care? They often ask, why doesn't she just leave? And thus the problem becomes not the abuser, but the woman. The disturbing long-term reality is it only makes a difference for the individual woman if she can manage to leave without getting murdered. Her leaving will not end the man's abuse. He will simply enter into another relationship with another woman. He will be quite able to convince her that he is the loving and kind man, and then the abuse will begin again. An intimate partner violence will continue perpetuated 95% of the time by men. Make no mistake about it. Men who abuse know exactly what they are doing. They will claim they don't understand it. They will make unaccountable language like, I just lost it, or I had a really bad day at work. I've always had a bad temper, but the truth is many of these men are fully functioning adults who have good employment records, strong relationships with their peers, and positions of authority in the community. Each week as an abuser instructor, I sit in a classroom for 90 minutes with 30 men who are convicted of domestic assault. These men have professional positions ranging from doctor, to wealthy business owner to auto mechanic and they certainly manage to control their tempers at work they are not punching out their customers or bosses calling them cows to make them feel bad about their bodies or screaming that they are worthless sluts why because the customers and clients are important to them the women they intimidate are not hundreds of thousands of Mainers will remember princess diana and her tragic death in a car crash in paris only a handful will remember the names of the main women who, since January 1998, have been murdered by men who claim to love them. Angela Perry, Sohia Nasrati, Don Layton, Sarah Raymond, Elizabeth Nelson. Hmm. Remember their name. And that's the end of my yes. presentation. Like I said to you, we are we going to start calling it the Men Suck I know. podcast? I know. Well, sorry. Ten email listeners. But. It's funny
1: because I have an NNW later that where I have some similar issues, Ooh. but I do want to make some points. When you mentioned about how the newspaper simplistically said he did it because she rejected mm-hmm. him, and you kind of refer that to that as victim blaming. I think it's more, and I'm not saying it's not victim-blaming, but I think it's more that, and this still happens now, 23 years later, 33 years, I can't add, however many years later it is, they're looking for some simple reason why he did it. Mm Mm-hmm. The the reporter is, and possibly the editor. And that is a, a symbolic of what the bigger issue as a whole is, that people do not recognize the dynamic of, of what happened. Yes, she was nice, like many women, if you read The Gift of Fear, are, and that it's difficult not to be nice, and who knows if she hadn't been nice, if he would have killed her anyway. I'm sure there are things we will never know about, incidents where he was harassing her and bothering her and she may not have even seen it as that but she just wanted
0: him to leave her alone yeah we don't know i mean we only know what her family told she might not even know maybe he was driving by her house right multiple times and she wouldn't
1: know and and even nowadays when a woman is getting unwanted inappropriate attention from a man the woman is still blamed is a woman who's been single all my life if there's a guy who's interested in me and i'm not interested and he won't leave me alone and it hasn't really happened recently but it's happened many times over my life people will say to me what's wrong with you he's a nice guy like i'm Mm -hmm. obligated men aren't told that about women who are bothering them, women who are bothering them, you know, they're going to boil your bunny in the, you know, Glen Close or whatever. I do want to talk for a minute too about the whole victims' rights things. It's a complicated issue and I'm probably in the minority and I may not explain this well, but the justice system is set up to address people who are convicted of crimes. Mm. And victims do have a certain place, and I agree there are ways that place can be made more comfortable for them. And there are ways they can be treated better. But what happens in one specific case to one defendant is part of a, a larger system that when it works well, it protects people who are convicted that their constitutional rights are protected, exactly. as well as people who are wrongly convicted. And also the punitive effect. I mean, if somebody did something horrible and they're sent to prison, whatever people on the outside may think, oh, they have the internet, they get to train yeah. dogs, they have music videos. Being in prison sucks. Ask anybody who's been there. It's not, no matter what little trappings they may have they are spending their life in a cage or a good part of their life in a cage and and i understand how a victim's family feels that's why they're not on the jury as much as you may want the person to spend every single second of their life in misery They do have to be treated like human beings. And frankly, especially for someone who has the possibility of getting out. Exactly. Whether you like it or not, treating him like an animal for 40 years is not going to produce somebody you want out in society. The idea is to try to help people and reform them and rehabilitate them. And I'm not saying, oh, poor criminals. What I'm saying is you can either put people in a cage for the rest of their life and let them fucking rot. Or you can recognize that they may be back out among you and the best way to keep them from doing to somebody else what they did to your sister and making them productive members of society is to treat them like human beings. Mm -hmm. And there is no jail or prison experience in the world that's a pleasant experience to be in. They're in there. And in fact, lengthy, lengthy sentences for things that are less than murder are really counterproductive in a lot of ways. It, it gets to a point where
0: there's no point to it. And, You're just punishing them and most of them are going to get out. Right. Uh, most people who are in prison are going to eventually get out. So
1: As they should. I always get my back up a little about the whole victim's rights things because people are very concerned about very specific cases and... The fact that the person who's convicted of the crime is being treated like a human being, you know, victims do have rights, but on the other hand, they are the victim of a of a crime. And the justice system is about justice, not about revenge. And also, I, I thought it was funny, during the, the discussion of his, his insanity, John Jr. said, you know, insane people are locked up, but yeah. most of
0: them aren't. I don't think Rob was legally insane i mean he knew what he was doing he was drunk 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 is no excuse that's not the legal definition of insanity right if you're just upset and you had a shitty life and you're drunk and you're mad because you want this woman to um have feelings for you that doesn't that's not legally insane right
1: and at space does the person know what they're doing is wrong no matter how they feel about it and how justified they do, he obviously knew it was wrong because he fled exactly anyway
0: any of us could get in a a situation like that where you're you know she's out working in the yard next door neighbors she's not thinking oh what a cute guy or whatever but she's just like oh that's you know the neighbor's son he's younger than me he's just some guy you know whatever and I'm sure you have a chit chat or whatever we've all done that for some reason with my job people tell me their troubles all the Mm -hmm. time you get stuck with people and he didn't seem to have have many friends and she seemed nice and And she
1: was obviously an empathetic person I think a lot of animal lovers are empathetic she was just being nice she did nothing and her wrong His father
0: even noticed that yeah. noticed it right his father even noticed it
1: but i also think and i'll go into this a little more in my nnw too that Ooh. that red flags particularly the kind that lead to domestic violence and violence against women are ignored and brushed away Mm -hmm. And the time to be concerned about somebody is when they start behaving in inappropriate ways. And just as women are told, even now in 2021, that they are expected to behave a certain way when they get unwanted attention and stuff, men who provide that unwanted attention are rarely dealt with in a way, you know, and I think we have to start looking at ways to deal with men in those situations. They're often enabled about we'll defend it, but
0: don't. them. And the, yeah. no one ever says to the guy, or very few people will say to the guy, why don't you back off? Right. Or you she need to
1: back off because what you're doing is not appropriate and it could get you into trouble. If I had heard about that case, I'd forgotten about it. Given that you said you didn't have a lot of information, and not only did I think you tell a good story, but you also made her seem very real oh
0: thank you 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 didn't
1: bang the drama about being all about the victim but you managed to make the victim a real human being who we. oh and i was gonna
0: say i actually met her brother once and i think and it was before her death i was at Gordon and i went i don't know why it was one of those health expos where a bunch of booths and he was at a booth for some reason we were talking to him i think someone was giving some kind of tests like a blood pressure or something and we were talking to him about was he there as an EMT yes he knew my doctor and for some Mm. reason he overheard Gordon and I talking and we were we just had a short conversation but it was funny because it was must have been right before her death maybe a month or a few months you know because then when we were watching tv and they interviewed him I said hey that's that guy we met at the at the thing it was just a weird coincidence so then when I saw her obituary that's probably why she stuck in my mind right besides the two dogs and that fact that that they have that every year and i always think of her and i kind of remember the story but not the full story and then when i looked it up there was more than i thought about it but 1998 apparently was a bad year for women according to that editorial uh, every year is in may but yeah i mean it sucks you're trying to go through life trying to just be a nice person be kind to people anyways but anyway so you have an nnw i do
1: <laughs> so i am doing a couple podcasts actually i want to call them a series but as some listeners may i've got a kind of crush on paul holes
0: mm, and
1: doesn't? Uh, some people may not but he has a lot of podcasts since you becky have turned me on to audible Ah. I've been listening to things that are included with my $7.99 a month membership. And I've stumbled onto a couple Paul Holes podcasts. And they're similar in that they're written by him and another person Peter McDonnell, and narrated by Jim Clemente of Real Crime Profile. There were two that are included. There's one that isn't that I'm, I'm not going to pay for. The two that are included, one is called The Riddle of Emin Bodfish, which is the first one I listened to, and the second one is A Devil in the Valley, which I just finished listening to. Mm. And what they are, for those of you who aren't familiar with Paul Holes, he's a criminalist who worked in Northern California for most of his career. I think he lives in Colorado now. He used to pursue cold cases on his, I don't know if you want to call it his spare time or whatever, as part of his interest. He's just very interested in what he does. So these are cases that he pursued over the years. Why don't we go into the NNW rating and I'll talk about the rest of it as we go.
0: Bad reenactments.
1: I'm not taking away anything. Obviously, it's a podcast. Mm. Most of them don't have reenactments, though some do. But he does have interviews that have been done with people and stuff if there's audio of the past, and it's used well.
0: Okay. Narrative cliches.
1: The writing is fairly good, and they tend to stay away from narrative cliches. There may be a few, but I am not taking away points.
0: Ooh racial or gender obtuseness
1: again in not, <laughs> well actually i'm going to take away half a point and it's for an ongoing mm. issue that that's going to affect a lot of the categories but i first want to say the riddle of emin bodfish emin bodfish he was born a woman and transitioned to to being a man and the way it's handled in the podcast it's handled very well They're very conscious of pronouns. They explain when people say she instead of he. And they do a good job without either overly, I don't know what the word is, sensitive about it, but also they explain it well and are not ignorant of it. And so they get big points for that. But there are the usual, and I'll get into it a little more with some of the other categories. Despite the fact that Paul is... I think a pretty fairly enlightened guy and um, very businesslike and has been in criminal justice for a long time and Jim Clemente too. There are some just, you know, kind of assumptions about women's stuff you just find in things and, and I'll get into that more in later categories, but I'm taking away half a point.
0: All right. Lack of good visuals.
1: Since no. it is a podcast and I'm not gonna find another way to do this category, I'm not taking away any points.
0: Missing cases.
1: I'm taking away a point.
0: Ooh.
1: There are some little ones, but the major issue is, for the second one that I listened to, A Devil in the Valley. And it's a story of a 1994 case in California. Well, actually, Paul looked into it in 1994, but it was the 1978 murder of a woman. It turns out the one murder he was looking into was related to a serial killer, although it's a little scary as we see a lot on true crime documentaries and stuff, when sometimes when a woman is killed, how many possible suspects there are. I know. And in this case, which happened in 1978, a couple serial killers emerge. And one of the episodes is looking at why were there so many serial killers in the 70s and 80s? They give a lot of the reasons why it just seemed to, to be a phenomenon. You know, not that there aren't a lot now. But it was kind of, the, if you excuse me putting it this way, the golden age for serial killers. Oh. And these episodes are, this isn't a discussion podcast, it's scripted. And Jim Clemente does kind of the general narration. And then Paul Hodes narrates his, like, what he was doing and blah, blah, blah. So it, it's, and, it, uh-huh. and it works really well. And I'll talk about that more later. But it's not like they're sitting around spitballing ideas. It's a scripted type. Podcast. Mm-hmm. So they go into a lot of the different reasons why there were so many serial killers, particularly in this part of California, and, and I won't go into all but one thing they don't even touch on. And one thing to me that's obvious why a lot of the killings, because Paul was looking into this one and he pulled the threads and come across others that weren't solved and who could have killed who and Uh, I think three or four or five women, but nobody says anything about how kind of the gateway crimes to, to sexual killings of women you know, rape, stalking, all those things that back then and still now in a lot of cases are treated very lightly. How how what women say and women's concerns and women's complaints are ignored or belittled or turned around to them by police and blah, blah, blah. And frankly, I don't know how you can talk about a lot of these serial killers, particularly the ones in this who were all sexually motivated killings Uh against women, how you can talk about that without talking about the light treatment men who obviously
0: have issues with women get like we talked about uh, you know if they're exposing themselves in public right. and stuff like that that's not and, taken seriously
1: right and so a lot of these and and there are some examples of it in this podcast but then you have to assume there are some things that Either weren't looked into or didn't make the podcast or were no records of or whatever. These guys obviously got very light sentences or were not convicted or were not charged because it's all this he said, she said crap and women aren't taken seriously. Exactly. And so I'm taking away a point. Because to me, that's a major hole that these guys who have long careers in criminal justice should should know about or be aware of, or at least fucking mention that one reason people, men develop into serial killing is that when they're doing the gateway stuff, nobody's doing anything about it and they're and the women are blamed and then the guys are enabled and empowered to continue and this isn't the only podcast to see it on but people don't take that seriously so that's minus a point
0: okay inaccuracies anachronisms
1: none that really stuck out there were some little things but i'm not taking away any points okay storytelling. I will not take away points. I think the way the dual narration, where as I said, Jim Clemente does kind of the overall narration and then Paul Holes talks, And he kind of weaves in like kind of what's going on in his life and why he got interested. And I know he has a writer helping him do this, but it all comes together really well. The way it's kind of personal as far as he's concerned, but he's very, he's detail oriented and he explains things very well. And he's got to be one of the only people I've ever heard on any podcast or true crime show point out that just because there's no evidence of sexual assault doesn't mean there wasn't sexual assault. That's right. Because, you know, that's one of my peeves yes, when, when they say, well, she wasn't sexually assaulted, you know, if there's no evidence and they're two different things and he's made that point, so I like that. And the storytelling is good. The Devil in the Valley is complicated. There's a lot of victims and a lot of killers and it's very clear who's being talked about and it all comes together. And so storytelling, yep. Yeah. No points taken away. Freshness. It's fresh. True crime podcasts are a dime a dozen. And Paul Holes is, I don't want to call him ubiquitous, but he's on a lot of TV shows and in a lot of podcasts. Yes. And yet, the way this one is done, he's got the chops. He investigated these cases. And I know I keep mentioning the narration, but it, it really works to have the overview by Jim Clemente and then paul holes and then there are interviews with other people and stuff and it's different than most of the other true crime podcasts it is it's not investigative it's him talking about investigation but it's the guy who was there and decided to do the investigation doing it and that's different from most others okay Good. Repetition. I'm not taking away any points. There is some repetition I'll talk about when we get to banging the drum that's, that was beginning to get on my nerves, but for the most part, it's not uh, repetitive. He repeats when you need to be reminded of something, and it, there's not annoying re-
0: repetition. And the last one, beating, beating the drum. The I'm
1: going to take away two points. <gasps> For beating the drum. See, I started the two. You started it? Thing. You started it and I'm carrying it forward. Oh my gosh. I think almost. we should only use that in extreme in extreme circumstances. <laughs> okay. But so, so far we have. It's something I was talking about a little when we were talking about your story tonight, in the one Devil in the Valley, and the M&M Bodfish one was a totally different type of story, and everything about it was different, and I didn't find any of these problems in it. But the Devil in the Valley, the guy who was convicted is L. Eligible for parole. He was originally sentenced to death. Then California, anybody who's listened to a true crime podcast from stuff that took place in the 70s and 80s knows this. California, the death penalty was found unconstitutional. And the sentences of the men... Most of the people are men in prison on death row were commuted. There's an entire episode of this podcast. I think it's maybe the second to the last one that goes on and on and on about how hard it is for the families to have to go back because now this guy may get parole oh, yeah, and go back all, every yeah. three years and testify and they have to relive it and blah blah blah. I, I don't mean to belittle what the families are going through, but the just harping for 45 minutes on. The parole system, making it seem like there's something wrong with parole, making it seem like, again, prisoners shouldn't have any rights. I understand when somebody's a sicko serial killer, you don't want to back out on the streets. Hopefully parole boards recognize that as well. The whole parole system exists so that people who should be getting out don't fall through the cracks. And it's not a perfect system, but that's why it's there. And this episode did nothing to explain why the parole system exists or why it's a necessary system. Instead, it was like 45 minutes of how awful, how victimizing it is for the families of victims to have to go through this. No talk at all about how the justice system fails on the front end of things. How the justice system failed to get these guys early mm-hmm. how the justice system failed to take crimes against women seriously exactly and well there's a little sneering about a light rape or two sentence and him being let out early. The issue is not the justice system as a whole, but how crimes against women are not taken seriously and how rapes are not taken seriously Mm -hmm. and how women are treated as victims of rapes. If you're going to rail against the justice system, don't rail about the parole the guy who was on death row is now never going to get even though he does have parole hearings, after he raped and killed six women or whatever, Uh rail against the fact that women are so demeaned and treated shittily that it's the only crime in the world where the victim has to defend herself and Uh is treated worse than, than the perpetrator, and then the perpetrator gets off or pleas to some lesser things so when people look at his record later they don't see that he fucking raped somebody they just see some kind of sexual misconduct thing how law enforcement won't talk to each other and won't deal with each other because of male ego and pride that keeps crimes by one person from being recognized all the things that are wrong with the justice system that made it a fertile ground for serial killers to get away with what they were doing is more condemnable, if that's a word, than how the justice and parole system works. Yes, Mm -hmm. it sucks if your family member was brutally raped and killed by somebody to have to go back every three years and tell a parole board that. But the bottom line is that did happen to your family member. And so, yes, you're a victim too, and that's part of how your life is going to suck for the rest of your life. And I'm not saying that to be glib. I'm saying that because nothing the system does is really gonna make it better for you but keeping people in cages to rot when maybe they shouldn't be there is not gonna be productive by any measure if the system works right somebody like the guys phil hughes was one of them he won't get out of prison and Mm -hmm. you going back there will keep that from happening It's better than us having some kind of penal system from the 1700s or something. I know I'm beating Beating my own drum. drum. I just get tired of hearing it because I hear it on a lot of podcasts. But the issue is, if we're going to be human beings, you can't chip away... At their constitutional right. When podcasts talk about, well, he, you know, he was sentenced to death, but then California got rid of the death penalty. Maybe take two or three sentences to explain why. And the huge number of people, mostly men, mostly black men, who have been executed in America, who didn't commit the crime. That they have been executed for.
0: Exactly. And
1: that also what the moral and ethical reasons are, why you don't want to just kill people as punishment. But that's never talked about. It's always talked about like everybody who's listening is going to feel the same way. Like we're disgusted by the fact that for a little while, California didn't have a death penalty.
0: So what's your final score? Did
1: you keep track? It is three and a half... Ten minus three and a half. Six and a half. Yes. The M Bodfish one is a very interesting story. The Devil in the Valley is also interesting, but it does have those issues
0: okay i mean i'm listening to a podcast on audible the first wife one do you like it yes i liked it and a lot and laura richards does say the things that you were just I saying. i know that's why i love laura richards about women not yes. not being taken she, seriously she's one of the few
1: who says it and she's always getting shit about it for those of you who don't know the first wife and i may have mentioned it uh i last think time you might now. have but it's but a can't. podcast on audible by laura richards that looks at dirty john's first wife tanya who he was married Ugh, to for 10 years and it's a an very interesting story I almost yes, forget about the is. whole dirty john story because
0: yes. this
1: and i have a, a quick recommendation on amazon prime it's got nothing to do with crime mostly but a three-part series the pursuit of love that was on oh, yeah. i think it started out as a bbc show and it's a remake of the Nancy Mitford novel from the 1940s that I loved. I highly rate it. Some people had issues because it has some modern music. I would like to point out the music is not an anachronism. It's done purposefully to enhance mood and I think it works really really well with it. My only issue is that there weren't more than three episodes because some characters uh, protagonists she's raised by her aunt. Because her mm-hmm. mother was a bolter. Her Aunt Mary's this Captain Davy, and his character in the books, his character on this is good. He does a good job, but he was much more rich in the books. And I think when you boil something down to three episodes, Yeah. even though it wasn't a really, really long book, but it was Emily Mortimer, one of the actors yes, in it. I think, I think she, she wrote the adaptation. I think she might have. And too she directed it. it. And, and it does have a woman's touch hmm. in a good way but I highly highly recommend it. I know it's gotten some bad reviews. I think because of the music things. I don't really like to read bad reviews of things that I like. My go-to guy Matthew Gilbert, the TV critic for the Boston Globe liked it. So, well, oh, that's And I think, if I'm correct, our next episode will be the one our sister Liz does. Yeah. If I'm counting right.
0: She's ready. Yeah,
1: she better be. I just want to say, in case people are curious, I'm not using the new audio equipment because I haven't figured out all the ins and outs yet. By the time Liz is here, we'll definitely be using it. Okay. And is there anything else? I don't
0: think so. Oh, okay. (laughs) Then
1: I guess that's it. Except to thank everybody for yep. listening. Thanks for listening. Okay. Bye bye.
0: You can say that it's me, but uh, you were breathing earlier. Okay. I'm uh, just so saying. we're
1: both breathing. Well, that's good. It but means you're we're alive. It's your way of it talking. Well, part of it is I take a lot of pauses. Like I have that William Shatner
0: long pause mm-hmm.
1: thing. And that's um, why
0: people always interrupt you and try to finish your sentence. I know. When they talk to you. It's
1: because I'm trying to pick my words carefully.